Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your seminary senior senioritiser and A People's Theology host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Matthias Roberts. Matthias is a licensed mental health counselor and host of Queerology. Also musically featured throughout this episode is A Hope for Home. A Hope for Home is a post-hardcore band from Oregon. You can get connected with both Matthias and A Hope for Home and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Matthias Roberts, and Matthias, you do a number of things in the world. Uh, you're quite a busy person, uh, but you are a licensed counselor, a uh, licensed uh, mental health counselor in uh, Seattle, and you're a recent author of a wonderful book called Beyond Shame, and let me make sure that I get the subtitle correct. I always want to make sure I get the subtitle correct. Uh, so it's called Beyond Shame, Creating a Healthy Sex Life on Your Own Terms, Uh in addition to all of that, even, uh, you also are a podcaster on a wonderful podcast called Queerology. Uh, so you do a number of things in the world, Matthias, but who is Matthias Roberts to Matthias Roberts? Who is Matthias Roberts to Matthias Roberts? <laughs> uh, no one's asked me that question before. Um, that. That's a much more complicated answer than than the question of who are you and what do you do. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Um, a little bit more therapist, if you ask me. A little bit more therapist, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, 
I would I would hope to say I mean in some ways this is an aspirational answer um, but I, I would hope to say that I am one who is becoming and one who is learning mm. um, that that would be what I hope to be mm. yeah and, and who I hope to be becoming and learning yeah I love that mm. so uh, as I mentioned you recently wrote a wonderful book called Beyond Shame. Uh, and this book is sort of part psychology and part theology. What did you learn about both psychology and theology as you were writing it? Yeah, so I mean, the book really birthed from years of both theological and, and psychological study. Uh, it was kind of, you know, everything that I learned in grad school kind of filtered through this topic mm. uh so a lot of it was just learning how to sync sync these worlds together mm. into something comprehensible um theologically i feel like i really started grasping onto how broadly sexuality and, and sexual ethics are kind of approached within scripture Mm. Um, you know, I, I grew up and some of the reason why I wrote this book was because I grew up in like deeply entrenched within almost fundamentalism and this idea that, that the Bible has a, a singular, uh, clear sexual ethic mm. uh, that's mm -hmm. consistent throughout scripture and really diving into it and realizing that's not quite the case. <laughs> and, and from a psychological perspective, you, just how deeply and this wasn't necessarily a new thing but continuing to uncover just how deeply entrenched sexuality is in shame mm. uh and how those two things you know they really kind of hold hands with each other in a way like i i, I argue in the book that the sexuality exists at the core of our personhood mm. um I also argue asexuality can exist in that place too, but, mm -hmm. but sexuality exists at the core of our personhood and like, that's what shame targets. Shame exists at the core of our personhood. And so when those two things kind of get intertwined, which they do relatively easily, um, we're working with really deep things. Mm -hmm. um, so <sighs> they're big topics. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're they're big things to dive into mm -hmm. um yeah for sure uh this is your first book right it is yeah so with this being your first book i'm sure it was quite a learning experience what did you learn about yourself as you wrote the book well how hard it is to write you know like <laughs> everyone <laughs> everyone says that you know i think you you read that everywhere. Everyone who's like, oh, I wrote a book and like writing is really, really, really hard. And I, I think going into it, I was like, yeah, whatever. Like it's, it's a book. You just sit and you just put words on a page. And, you know, after being in grad school and, and doing that work, you know, I was like, yeah, I can totally write a book. But my gosh, like it's a whole nother level to have to to try to write something so long form maintain like a coherent argument throughout it and also have for me having enough things to say like i, mm. I think i err on the side of brevity typically mm -hmm. uh and so unpacking something over you know fifty thousand words it, it took quite a bit of effort for me to, <laughs> to be able to do that mm -hmm. um yeah that was that was a big thing i learned was it's just hard it's hard work 
How, how does it feel now that it's finished, knowing that you did something that was incredibly hard and did it really well? Like, how, what, what does that feel like maybe in your body or how does that feel in general? On one hand, it feels really good. Like those moments where I can kind of sink down into it and and realize like, oh, I, I did this. Like it's it's done and it's out in the world and and kind of seeing the fruits of that work. Like that feels really good. It's also hard for me to sit in that like I I think something that a lot of my mentors have been kind of encouraging me towards is is sitting in celebration because I think my tendency is just to move on to the next the next thing like I'm a I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with Enneagram work but I'm a seven and Mm. solidly a seven And, and so this kind of energy of just jumping from one project to the next to the next without a whole lot of in between is is something I'm quite familiar with. Uh, so it's hard to just kind of sit in the satisfaction and and the goodness of of like I did something. Um, I'm already thinking of what's next. Mm-hmm. What's <laughs> what's going to happen? Yeah. You are interested in probably a number of things, uh, and you sort of alluded to this a little bit ago, but. Why is it that sh- was it that shame was the thing you wanted to write about first as your first book? Yeah, it was. It felt more like something that I stumbled into as opposed to like, this is what I want my first book to be about. Um, I think originally when I was talking to my publisher about doing a book, I kind of I came to them with an idea of taking for my theology masters my thesis and kind of unpacking that into a a larger book which which my thesis was on uh kind of relationship and intimacy and and flourishing around lgbtq identities uh and i pitched that and my publisher was like nobody will want to read that like no one wants to read (laughs) that and then they're like can you think of a way to kind of tweak that a little bit into something slightly more marketable and mm. and that's where this kind of idea of of shame and sexual shame and, and kind of looking around at, at both things that I was really interested in but also people around me seem to be interested in wondering about I was like I can I could take this idea of shame and all of my work that I've done around sexuality and, and sex and kind of move those two things together uh and so it just kind of happened that way, in, mm-hmm. in a sense, like super interested in it. And it's not really what I set out to do. <laughs> and I'm so glad that I did it, mm-hmm. if, if any of that makes sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. So one of the things that you explore in the middle part of the book is kind of talk a little bit about what the Bible says about sex and shame. Uh, So what exactly does the Bible say about sex and shame or what does it maybe not say about sex and shame? (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's the bigger question. One, 
I don't know that the Bible explicitly talks about shame. I mean, it, it uses shame-based language, but but like these kind of distinguishments between shame and guilt that we're talking about, I think we could probably find them in scripture, but it would take some, some work. Those are mm-hmm. modern constructions. Uh, but that, that bigger question though of, of sex, I, I argue in the book, well, what I do in the book is, is a little bit more of a, of a kind of survey of what's out there as opposed to making a, an, my own argument, but, but saying a lot of what it seems like in, in scripture falls around this conversation of sex falls back on this word porneia, mm. the, kind of mm-hmm. the Greek root uh, for uh, what's translated as fornication and, and sexual immorality. And uh, when you really start diving into that that word, it's one that wasn't used a whole lot when Paul was writing. And therefore, the definition is relatively unclear. And many people have put their own definitions on that word. Mm-hmm. Uh, same as like the word fornication kind of today. That word doesn't have a super clear meaning as to what fornication is. It depends on who's talking about it as to how they're defining it. Some people mm-hmm. says it includes masturbation. Other people say, no, not at all. And blah, blah, and so on. Uh, so that word porneia really depending on who's translating it will show what a sexual ethic is. Mm-hmm. And, and so I kind of broaden out a little bit and, and wonder like maybe they were using that word the people, the, the biblical writers were using that word for a reason because of the ambiguity of it to show us that maybe something bigger is going on here. Mm. When we're talking about sex and sexuality, these things that we really want to apply kind of these really moralistic categories to, it may mean that we need to be doing a little bit more work than just saying, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, um, that, that there could be more going on. Uh, that's the position I ultimately take is, is that, you know, sexual ethics are going to look different for different people based on our own particularities, mm. based on whether we're queer or straight or kind of whatever spectrums we fall on, what our genders are. Um, those things are going to look very, very, very different. And our sexual ethics are going to look very, very, very different based off of those things. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate the insight about the, you know, Suggesting that the biblical writers, uh, when you know, me- mentioning of porneia being this like ambiguous word and intentionally using it as such, I really appreciate that because um, as somebody who also like grew up in purity culture, I, um, I actually like kind of my, for lack of a better term, my initiation into deconstruction was. Um, was about purity culture and really my uh, frustration with it as you know as as a teenage boy would be right and mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of my lgbtq friends who grew up in that same culture right a lot of that has to surround around their sexual orientation and that wasn't necessarily uh the case for myself as a straight person but i still had this frustration around my own sexuality as somebody who's growing up in purity culture and i still remember i think it was my freshman year i was a religion major in my small little christian college which was quite still pretty conservative um but really within the religion department was very open liberally uh, for me to explore different kind of questions that I had yet to explore. And so I still remember it was my first like biblical interpretation class. And the end project at the end of the year was we had to write this like exegesis on some passage. And mm. 
of course, mm-hmm. like the consuming question in my mind at that time was about sex and about the particular passages in the Bible about that. And so I chose like one verse in particular in first Corinthians. I think it was like first Corinthians six through 20 or something. And of course, like largely the exegesis had to deal with this word porneia. Like, what do I do with it? And one of the things that I really appreciate about your insight is I never, it never occurred to me, even in this like study uh, of it, my freshman or sophomore year in college, it never occurred to me that maybe there was an intentionality behind using that word where the ambiguity of it actually allowed for many different sexualities to be included within that that ethic that's included in that word mm-hmm. um and so i really appreciate that insight because i that never had occurred to me in my own study of that word mm-hmm. so uh mm-hmm. just thanking you for for that uh kind of new insight for me um later on in the book you talk a little bit about the paradoxes of sex Mm-hmm. And as someone who has been educated in both theology and in uh, psychology, what are the ways in which you sort of see the paradoxes of theology, things like paradoxes in theology, like imminence and transcendence and fully human and fully divine? How do you think of those paradoxes within theology to be able to help us consider the paradoxes in sex, if such paradoxes help us at all to think about those things? Yeah. I'll give an answer. I don't know if it's directly an answer to that question specifically, Mm -hmm. but it may be a roundabout one um, in the sense of why I chose to write about paradoxes instead of some other alternatives. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my my main motivation behind that was a sense of, so purity culture taught us this very, very, very specific, you know, right, wrong, here's truth. Okay. Mm -hmm. Here's what a sexual ethic is. And in so much of my work, I've noticed, especially for those of us who were raised in purity culture, we're really resistant to people coming in and telling us, here's truth, (laughs) here's Mm -hmm. right, here's wrong, and here's what you got to do. And especially because, you know, we're we're noticing more and more back to this kind of multiplicity of, of, um, in particularity of of people, that there are different truths for Mm -hmm. different people. and so all of that kind of came together with this question of how do we write about sexual ethics now? Like, how do we write about <laughs> this this thing of where we may be holding sex and sexuality really seriously, but we don't want it to be prescriptive. I don't mm-hmm. want to write a prescriptive sexual ethic. And so this idea of paradoxes came to me because there are things that are true within sex and sexuality. Also, to your point, within theology, things that are true that are almost in some ways contradictory to each other these Mm -hmm. i mean that's the definition of a paradox so sex is healthy and risky both of those things are true it is very healthy it is also very risky and and um sex makes us vulnerable it also helps us avoid vulnerability both of those things are very true Mm -hmm. um I think when we start wrestling with these paradoxes they actually kind of give us a way forward we can kind of tow this, these lines and find a path kind of in I'm not a huge fan of the language of finding a middle path but but in some ways it almost is a middle path a, a way a, maybe a tension maybe a better way of saying it a tension between these things that are, are true that actually give us a way of living a way forward into finding what our values are and in operating out of kind of the groundedness that that gives mm-hmm. um 
how that relates theologically, I, I would argue similar things. Mm-hmm. They help us find groundedness and paths in these these kind of competing ideas um, that kind of show us the nature of what reality is. Yeah, it's cer- it certainly seems to be really inclusive to like the human experience, right? To honor both that something like sex can be both risky and healthy honors the experience of those who maybe have experienced one or the other, or maybe even both. Um, right. Just in the same way when uh, Jesus followers were contemplating and reflecting on their experiences with the Christ and trying to consider both the humanity that they experienced in this person, but also this divine nature that seemed to be fully there too, right? right. So I, I, it's really interesting how like those paradoxes um, are really, I mean, both in your work and in, I think, in a lot of theology are trying to uphold these paradoxes and not trying to alienate one over the, over the other because they want to honor the full breadth of human experience. Would you right. say that maybe that's sort of what you're trying to get out with uh, including paradox within a sexual ethic? Absolutely. Absolutely. So often we've talked about what sex is not or the rules. Mm-hmm. And so rarely we talk about what sex is. Uh, and you know, we've, we've fallen on either side of those conversations often. <laughs> and, and we have to hold, hold that tension. ways in which uh, you can see faith communities resisting uh, in like installation of sexual shame into its participants? I, I mean, this one may seem really obvious, but I, I think a first one is to just even allow open conversation about sex and sexuality, mm-hmm. uh, which for how obvious it seems, <laughs> it's very rare that that actually happens, at least in the faith communities that I've been a part of. Uh, and and so that's a huge one, like normalizing conversation about sex and sexuality. Uh, but what that means is then we have to get comfortable talking about sex and sexuality. That means all of us have to do our work. It's un- they're uncomfortable things to talk about. Uh, so the only way that that will happen is for us to do that work within relationship, within community. Uh, there's there's a, a a researcher and, and sex therapist by the name of uh, Tina Shermer Sellers, mm-hmm. who she wrote the, the foreword to my book, but she has this concept specifically related, related to parenting, but I, but I think uh, this could tie into faith communities too, of, of 10,000 tiny conversations mm-hmm. uh, of this is how you have these conversations with your kids about sex. It's not one singular big conversation when a kid hits, you know, 13 or 16 or, or whatever. It's 10,000 I think she calls them one minute conversations, 10,000 really tiny conversations that kind of normalize over a period, all of these different things. I think we could adopt that in our faith communities to open up, to, to kind of level the playing field in a way to where we're able to talk about these things, bring them to light. Shame thrives in secrecy. Mm-hmm. And so 
when things are actually being talked about, we're in, inherently within that removing shame from it. Mm-hmm. This might be really similar to some of the suggestions uh, to faith communities that you have for them moving beyond uh, shame. But what are maybe some personal practices that are integral for you to moving beyond shame, whether or not it's sexual or otherwise? Um, and, uh, you know, certainly you don't have to go as personal as you want, uh, only insofar as you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, there, there's a practice that I talk about in the book at the end a little bit. I don't go super in depth with it, but but it's one that has been integral for me and, and my own shame broadly to find shame. But sexual shame too is is a practice of self compassion, uh, and, and I use methodology uh, developed by a researcher named Dr. Kristen Neff. Uh, she's a psychologist, I think, in Berkeley. Hmm. Don't know that for sure, uh, but all of her work has been centered around this idea, kind of this Buddhist idea of self compassion or, or compassion, and bringing that into you know neuroscience and then studying all of the different things that that, that actually does. She's developed a, a three-step system uh, I use with myself, I use with my clients. Uh, it's kind of a meditation sequence of first you, you simply name what you're feeling. So uh, <laughs> I'm feeling shame right now, or this is really unpleasant. Like you're, you're actually naming reality for what it is instead mm-hmm. of trying to avoid it. Um, I often use the example of kind of body image uh when we when we look in the mirror sometimes you know we try to pump ourselves up and say i look really good right now to to cover the actual insecurity that we're feeling so mm-hmm. self-compassion is to actually say instead of saying i look really good right now is saying i actually feel really insecure <laughs> about how mm-hmm. i look right now mm-hmm. the second step is is to normalize that is to say this is actually a really normal thing to feel and and universalize it uh, I am not the only one who feels this way. In fact, there are probably thousands of people in the world right now who are feeling this, this exact feeling in this very moment. Mm-hmm. So, so we're normalizing and connecting ourselves to a larger reality. And, and then the final step is to offer ourselves the care and compassion that we need. So, so it, it, it's simply saying, I will, I will give myself care in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever that looks like, Dr. Neff, suggest a variety of practices um and 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 it can kind of expand from there but but those three steps are you know they're simple but they're very very radical in the ways that they actually name reality and then work with reality as it is Mm -hmm. um to, to move us into kind of a fuller state of being Have Matthew Ellis and Matthew is the guitarist and uh, the, one of the singers in A Hope for Home. So uh, Matthew, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself, your involvement in A Hope for Home, and then uh, maybe just briefly talk, talk about like some of the other things you're up to in the world because uh, that's not clearly obviously the only part of your life. Yeah, man, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really pumped um, to be here. 
Yeah. Um, so I'm Matt. I'm uh, the you know guitars, vocals, uh, one of two of each in Hope for Home, I guess. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, you know, just it was a thing we did, a project we did from I'd say about 2006 to you know our last record we put out was in 2011. We'll talk about later. I'm assuming uh, mm -hmm. what's coming down the pipeline. Um, but yeah, so that that was sort of you know kind of the, just the big big project we did, um, and uh, since then uh, we all kind of you know got older. We were sort of in our early mid twenties, um, sort of just you know took a, took a phase into the next you know took a took a walk in sort of the next phase of our life. Um, I you know a couple of us went back to school. I went back to school and then ended up. Um, Perhaps foolishly, but not. Um, but regardless, here I am um, in a PhD program uh, at Brown University, um, studying. My department's called Modern Culture and Media. Um, the best way I could sort of describe it, I guess, is something like um, sort of a, a combination between like media studies and philosophy. I guess is sort of the oh. best way to describe it. Which, honestly, in my mind, it's kind of like, in to me, it was sort of a natural evolution in that it was sort of like. I think of the work that I do in graduate school now as kind of an extension of what we were always trying to do in a hope for home. You know, we were mm. kind of, you know, pretentious nerds and whatever, but like, you know, it was always, you know, what we, we didn't just want to write, you know, fun songs. It was always like, we want to think through things and also that like, you know, art and stuff that you produce is actually a thing in the world. So I guess it was just sort of at, at the point where the band was and everything for me personally, anyway, my journey was kind of like, all right, this is, I think, the next logical step to like keep thinking through art and what art can do and um, sort of just addressing the, you know, kind of questions and, and, and that kind of thing. So, so now here I am. I'm at the end of the program. Um, I, I should be graduating with my PhD in May of this year. And uh, nice. who knows? Who knows after that? Awesome. Um, with, with that uh, all said, uh, we'll, and we'll want to talk a little bit more about the PhD program and, and all of that uh, a little later, but um, let's first talk about A Hope for Home because, you know, that was probably a big piece of your life for a while. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of the beginnings of A Hope for Home and kind of take us through a little bit of that history. You mentioned that you started about in 2006. Um, so can you start a little bit around there? Because it, it's really interesting. I mean, it really only was sort of this five-year thing, at least up until in abstraction. Uh, but you released a lot of material in between then. I mean, there was three full-length albums. There might have been even like a fourth or an EP or whatever. So yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that whole history from 2006 to 2011? Yeah, totally. No, totally. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, so... Um... I graduated from high school in 2005 and I was just sort of just playing music and sort of goofy, you know, local bands with a bunch of my very closest friends and, you know, sort of doing whatever. And then I just sort of did the thing that you did, you know, sort of a middle class, whatever, you know, kid in 2005. And I went off to college and sort of my best friend at the time who was in the band, uh, his name is Kyle Cook. Um, he had been diagnosed with cancer years earlier. Um, and sort of was always a fun thing that, uh, he, uh, he had a, he had a fake leg cause, um, he, he had a fake leg and they would, uh, it was, I'm not sure exactly what the history of this whole um, surgery is, but they sort of cut out his knee and replaced um, his knee with his foot backwards. And so it was always just a fun thing he would for the rest of his life. And he actually started playing drums, which is really interesting. And he would be able to like play drums, you know, really well with um, his fake leg. And he loved joking about it. And anyway, anyway, um, so I left to go to college because that's sort of what you did. And um, about a couple months into my freshman year of college, he called me up and was like, so uh, cancer's back and this time it looks really bad. I don't know what to do. 
and you know, I'm 18 years old and I'm, you know, going to college and skipping classes and sleeping in. And I was just like, you know what? Screw it, man. Like I'm going to drop out of college and just go home. And I probably have six months left with my friend and let's just, let's write a record. Let's start a band. And so I, 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 I ended up finishing the year, but then sort of dropped out and moved back home and we wrote a bunch of songs together and Kyle unfortunately passed that summer and it was sort of three or four three four of us or so and we sort of decided at that moment like you know what like screw it let's just like kind of keep going with this thing um and see where it goes and since then it sort of you know evolved uh obviously after that but um yeah I would say it was sort of this just moment of like it felt like this thing was being born out of the sort of moment of, you know, trauma is not the right word, but just this sort of like, there's always already a sense of kind of loss and the sort of temporality of every, the, you know, the, the impossibility of this, of something always being there. Right. And so yeah. always being kind of presently aware of the sort of, you know, how little time we have, or, you know, the, the meaning of some kind of thing right there at that moment. And so our first record was kind of that we did ourselves was sort of, written there's a song named Kyle on that record but sort of forged I think sort of out of that moment um and so yeah I I you know every band starts in a different way obviously and I, it's not at all in my mind a thing that makes our band more special than any other band or anything but I think it was just a really unique and it was a really just interesting moment in all of our lives I think to be like what what does it mean to like begin something at an end right um, and I think that's mm. something that we really kind of always just even later, you know, years later, still doing this kind of always wanted to have that there, you know. The last song on In Abstraction, and I, I think certainly the best song on, on In Abstraction is uh, Everything uh, That Rises Must Converge. And I mentioned about a year or two ago to a friend uh, about this song and, and like sent it to him and he's like, wait. And this friend also is a, is a big theology person. And he looked at the title of the song and he's like, is that a Pierre de Chardin quote? And, and I knew, I know, like now I know who that person is and I've known that person the last couple of years. But at the time, I, I, you know, when I first listened to In Abstraction, I would have never known who that was. Um, and now being in the process theology world, Pierre uh, de Chardin is like a, you know, pretty process adjacent person and, you know, has really in, in a lot of ways influenced a lot of my own theology. Um, so yeah, I want, I, and it may be like one of those quotes that's just like super popular and lots of people have said it and will attribute it to themselves. Uh, but was that uh, title of that song coming from a Pierre Deschardins quote? Yeah. Um, and this one was actually Nathan, our vocalist, but okay. yes, it was. And it, and it, it took the root of through Flannery O'Connor to that right um and i mean this is sort of again as we're nerds and we sort of a lot of our uh like uh the machine stops off realis is off a classic em forster novel you know we did the like thrice thing and did the, like the c.s lewis quotes although i will full i will fully <laughs> admit at the time we were like 19 and just like oh that's what Thri that's what thrice does so we should do it too um but you know then sort of picked it up but no yeah absolutely um and it was I think what I would say about an abstraction in particular, in part, especially because we'd stopped touring and it was like, there really aren't, we don't need to worry about this stuff anymore. Right. There was a, there was a way in which Realis is, I think to me, the record where I sort of worked my stuff out, you know? Um, mm. And it was sort of a 
trying to, not trying to couch it in acceptable language or whatever, but it was like really kind of trying to work out these sort of questions and arrive at this point. Um, but then in abstraction was the point where it's sort of like, okay, Realis maybe didn't actually sort of answer these questions or sort of like really get to that. And um, we don't have to really worry about what happens because we're not touring anymore. So let's just write what we want to write and say what we want to say. Um, and so, yeah, so in Nathan and I, I mean, with every record we talk, um, sort of about concepts and what the whole record is about, but I have to, I have to give credit to Nathan for this, 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 I think he wrote all the lyrics on this song, honestly, but, um, yeah, it was, um, I think, I think in, <clears throat> if he listens to this, he can, uh, tell me when I'm wrong. I think if I remember the story is that he was reading the Flannery O'Connor short story book that it's based on and then was like, wait a minute, this is interesting and sort of dug into it and like, oh my God, this is what we've been talking about already for this whole record, right? This mm. sort of whole point of, you know, we were so burnt out into, I won't name names, but like touring with the like really intense kind of Christian metal scene at that point in which shows were sermons and there were altar calls and there were like you know declarations of what you need you need to do and this kind of thing and we were like and then they'd sell t-shirts and it's just like what that what just feels gross you know mm -hmm. um and so yeah um this was just kind of i think a moment of like there's there's something like this is what and especially i think better way of saying it is is to that crowd is that we were on top of wanting to say what we wanted to say, we were cognizantly aware that, you know, the the people that were ostensibly buying a record put out by Face Down Records um, would be sort of amenable to, a, not just amenable to a certain kind of message, but already speaking a certain kind of shared language, right? Mm -hmm. So, So in that sense, it's sort of like, well, this is, I think, at least at the time, it was like, this is, I think, the way that I, we really want to try to say what this what we'd been feeling all the time on these tours and like feeling watching, you know, going, I remember at sunshine, like going to get our check, which is like the only way we'd get uh, to the next town or like get, be able to get back home and waiting in line, watching like some worship band, uh, you know, get their check and just like, what, the, what, like, and granted, you know, it's a, it's a business or whatever, but it just, it felt weird. You know, it felt weird. And like, we were like, I don't know what we're doing with this. And I really want to think harder about, what it if we're going to put stuff out and ask people to buy it that you know it's not like we're getting money for it but like ask people to like spend their money and get this like what what is the kind of thing we're gonna say you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and yeah um that kind of uh and again i don't want to you know name names or whatever but it did feel like kind of a uh we kind of wanted to be intentionally provocative right sort of to push a point i think you know i i, I think as far as I can sort of see, and you know, Mason, I've sort of following your work recently a little bit as well. You know, like I think I'm really excited that I think this some of this stuff is you know kind of coming to the forefront um, as the world descends into whatever is happening. But um, especially at the time, anyway, it really felt like it. It it we felt kind of like we were going out on a limb, and mm, um, mm -hmm. but I but I'm proud of it, and I'm proud we we did it, and yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks for, for joining us again, Matthew. Uh, Thanks like for having I said me. before, this is just like unbelievable to talk with someone, a part of a band, a part of a project that has meant so much to my own life. So uh, yeah, thank you for, uh, for sharing a little bit more about that journey and then also where you're at now and where you're going in the future. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be on your podcast.
obviously the book is primarily about sexual shame. Can you talk a little bit more about how working and processing through your own sexual shame and maybe even uh, the sexual shame of others and their own processing through it, how that has opened them up to uh, working through other forms of shame that may be connected to sex, but also are not explicitly that? Yeah. So I think where we work with shame anywhere, we're working with it everywhere. Uh, and I think we get a sex and sexuality gives us a really unique place to be able to, <laughs> to do shame work because sex is so deeply corely tied to who we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we work with sexual shame, we're actually working with almost the entirety of our lives. I argue in the book, uh, quoting some people that, that, um, that what happens in the bedroom is, is a microcosm of what happens in the rest of our lives all of our shame, all of our insecurities, all of our vulnerabilities, all of those things show up in the bedroom in ways that are, you know, really kind of pronounced. <laughs> so mm-hmm. when we can do work there, we're, we're doing work that, that kind of transcends, transcends the bedroom. Um, so I argue working with sexual shame, you know, you don't have to do that with a partner. You can do that in your own personal sexuality, whether that be in your masturbation life or your fantasy life or whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. Like uh, when we do that work, we're actually liberating ourselves from shame everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that to say, I think is is really important. I don't know if that quite answers mm-hmm. your question. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So let's step aside from the book for a second. You, like I mentioned at the beginning, host a podcast called Queerology. Mm-hmm. What exactly is this podcast about and what have you learned from it? Uh, yeah. You're on like a couple seasons now. So yeah. what, what have you learned from it so far? Yeah. So we're, we're deep into season four of Queerology. And the, the, the subtitle is, it's a podcast on belief in being, which I, I kind of stole that from... Krista Tippett in a way and, and her podcast on being because uh, that's really kind of what I modeled it after is is bringing in a wide variety of people who sit at these intersections of faith or spirituality and queerness to talk about not just that but kind of life in general mm-hmm. I when, when I kind of launched the podcast was kind of concluding or or past this work of is it okay to be queer and christian <laughs> mm-hmm. which is a really important conversation but noticing there's there wasn't much out there at the time still arguably is not much out here right now of what happens next like once we figured out like it is okay to be queer and christian or a queer person of faith how do we actually go and live our lives and that's the question that queerology tackles is you know we start with i start every episode with the question how do you identify how has your faith helped form that identity that's the starting point and we move from there into a wide variety of things mm-hmm. uh, and i really love that it, it shows the breadth of all of these different people who are doing vastly different things with their lives, who are still living at, at these identities, at these intersections of identity and doing really, really, really neat, flourishing work in the world. Mm. That, that's, that's choreology. I love that. My tagline for my podcast is exploring, inspiring, and liberating theology. So how do you see Beyond Shame being inspiring and liberating theological work? 
yeah, you know, I was taught that theology um, is a very specific thing uh, for specific things. It was it was deeply colonized and white mm-hmm. and and fundamentalist and shame based. To be honest, mm-hmm. I think so much of the theology that I was taught growing up is is deeply rooted in shame. The idea we are dirt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, now, I think I think theology is the antithesis of that, mm. uh, and and so to be able to to do this work, both in Beyond Shame, but also in my in kind of my broader life, uh, hopefully, I mean I realize I'm not the one who actually gets to say this about my work, but hopefully it's it is work that invites people into the abundance and flourishing of a life lived almost as a pun beyond shame <laughs> like <laughs> it's liberating us from from the shame uh that, that we were given and that we were told that we had to buy into in order to be christian mm. not true mm-hmm. i love that uh last question matthias how can listeners get connected to you and your work yeah so i'm across the internet at matthias roberts uh that's matthias with two t's uh, you can find queerology wherever you listen to podcasts and then my book beyond shame you can buy wherever you get books. Um, pretty easy. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciated reading Beyond Shame. Um, yeah, it, it was a very, as someone who's a seminary student, it was a very different kind of read for me. And I really appreciated, uh, it was sort of being a breath of fresh air and somebody who grew up in purity culture. It was really helpful. And I, I think what I really appreciate about a lot of your work is, um, you know, certainly a lot of it is centered around uh, thinking through things from a queer perspective. Uh, but as much as I don't want to colonize that work, like there, I think there certainly are applications to it, even to someone like myself who is heterosexual. So I like I really appreciate your work and for all of those reasons. And so thank you so much for sharing it. And thank you for sharing some more about it on my podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you would like to connect with both Matthias and the Hope for Home and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. <laughs>